0: Have you ever seen the other side of the Moon? Ah, I caught you. Of course not! But maybe you've seen it in photos. In that case, have you ever wondered why the two sides look so different? Well, let me tell you. We can't see the other side of the Moon. People believe this is because the Moon doesn't rotate around its axis. But this is not true. The Moon does rotate. It just does it at the same rate as its orbital motion. This is a particular case of tidal locking called synchronous rotation. The first time we ever saw a far side was only in 1959, all thanks to the Soviet Luna missions and later the U.S. Apollo program. Now, when Luna 3 and other spacecraft transmitted the first far side images, they revealed a far more cratered hemisphere that looked more like Mercury or Jupiter's moon Callisto. It looked completely different from what we were used to. And that's when we learn how meh the other side is. No, seriously, just look at it! The near side can boast its thinner and smoother crust. These beautiful dark splotches are called lunar mare, the last remnants of ancient lava flows. And when I say ancient, I mean it! They're more than 3 billion years old! Meanwhile, the far side crust is thicker and crater-pocked. The lava flows had almost no effect on these impact craters. It's also devoid of any large-scale mare. Low-key, looks like dried white cheese. To be honest, don't you agree that the nearby side is much more beautiful? Write your thoughts in the comments. So, only 50 years ago, we learned something about the apparent differences. But then the scientists discovered something weird. Both sides are different, even in the geochemical composition. And not only in this. Our side was thinner than the far side by several miles. But where did such significant differences come from on an ordinary floating stone ball? For scientists, this was a mystery. They started coming up with a lot of theories. The melted moon theory was the main one for a while. It said that it was the Earth's fault that our moon looks like this. This happened several billion years ago. The moon was born because of a collision. One day, an object about the size of Mars crashed into the Earth. At that moment, a piece broke off from it, which later became the Moon. However, this piece was somewhere 15 times closer to Earth than it is now. Some scientists created pictures of the so-called early moon. Unlike our cute little white ball, the early moon was a strange-looking boiling scarlet ball. That piece didn't leave us after the separation. It became tidally locked very soon after. The Earth after the collision was still an incandescent nightmare, full of fire and lava. It was boiling at a temperature of 4,500 degrees Fahrenheit. And since the Moon has always been turned toward us with one side, this side has melted down a little. This would explain why the Moon's surface, the so-called mantle, is thinner on the near side than on the far side. During the boiling of the Earth, certain elements evaporated from it. They then settled on the Moon. This would explain the difference in geochemical composition between the two sides. But there was a plot hole in this theory. If that's what happened, then where did rare foreign chemical elements come from, such as unusual isotopes of phosphorus, potassium, or tungsten? The nearby site is full of them, and they couldn't have come from the Earth. There were also other theories. Another one said that initially, we had two teeny-tiny moons. Later, they merged into a big one, hence the difference in their composition. But this theory sounds a bit crazy, and it has a plot hole, too. For example, the transition between the two sides is way too soft. If our moon was actually two tiny moons, this transition would be more abrupt. So scientists were kind of at a loss on this one. But recently, they finally figured out what really happened to the moon, all thanks to NASA's GRAIL orbiters. They spent over a year whizzing around the Moon, mapping it out, and studying its composition. Using this data, scientists have created around 360 computer simulations. They contain different impacting objects of many sizes, traveling at different speeds. Scientists were comparing the results with our current Moon. They tried to determine which result was the closest to what we have today. And so, they finally solved this 50-year-old mystery. The answer lies in a collision with a dwarf planet. This collision occurred 4.3 billion years ago. This huge object was slightly larger than Ceres. For those who don't know, Ceres is one of the dwarf planets of our solar system. Its diameter is 580 miles. You could say that one France or one Germany would fit into it. So, this giant object crashed into the Moon, somewhere near the South Pole. This collision was so strong that it changed the image of the moon forever. It left a trail of 3,500 miles behind. It would take you 14 hours by plane to fly that distance. This crater covered the entire near side of the moon. It caused damage to the moon's mantle. It also created a so-called South Pole Aiken Base, or SPA Basin. This is an impact crater and has a diameter of 1,600 miles which is like adding one UK plus one Germany. It's important, though. The formation of this basin was a defining event in the history of the Moon, and it's the second-largest impact crater in the solar system. The collision also caused a powerful hot wave to spread across the Moon. This wave scattered over the remnants of those rare warm minerals scientists found on the nearby side. That's how our beautiful side became home to something called Procellarum creep terrain, or PKT for short. This is basically a compositional anomaly, a concentration of potassium, phosphorus, and other rare elements like thorium. You can say that those minerals are a gift to us from deep space. Anyway, there were many, and I mean many, collisions in the Moon's history. All of them only deepened this already large crater. That's why the mantle on the near side was getting thinner and thinner with the years. Also, our gifted minerals gave off a lot of heat, so the mantle has melted a little bit more and more. Picture this. You've won a membership to a space gym. You get to travel around the solar system and work out. But gravity changes on different space bodies. So let's find out if you can get stronger elsewhere or if you should keep practicing on Earth your spaceship is approaching dwarf planet Pluto. It's getting chillier by the second. No wonder! The Sun is over 3.7 billion miles away. You must be glad you brought your thermal spacesuit along, right? To leave the spacecraft, Earthlings would need the help of a gravity machine, since gravity on Pluto is a mere 1 15th of that on Earth. Gravity is the force that pulls you toward the ground. The smaller the mass of a space body is, the weaker its gravity. So, on Pluto, you can't do any sports that involve running. If you did, you'd most likely fly away. You can try out elephant lifting, though. After all, you can't do it back on Earth. On Pluto, picking up an elephant weighing 2,000 pounds feels like lifting 120 pounds. The next stop is Neptune. It's over 30 times farther away from the Sun than Earth. The atmosphere there is dark and cold. You might get overwhelmed by the planet's gigantic size. It's called an ice giant for a reason. Maybe today you'll feel like doing some winter sports? To say Neptune exists in perpetual winter is an understatement. The average temperature on this planet is around minus 373 degrees Fahrenheit. But gravity here is only 10% stronger than that on Earth, so you don't feel much difference. This world doesn't have a solid surface, so you won't be able to leave the spacecraft. Is that an ice hockey rink I see? Grab your ice skates and your stick and get ready to outplay your fellow passengers. How about a quick pit stop on Uranus? This is another ice giant, and gravity here is 90% of that on Earth. You can do a few push-ups inside the spacecraft, as you won't be stepping outside. The slushy surface of the planet is made up of water, methane, and ammonia in its liquid form. There's no solid ground to walk on. But if you somehow found a way to go outside, you'd feel lighter than on Earth. If you weighed 100 pounds back home, it would be 90 pounds here. Can we call this a Uranian diet? When approaching Saturn, please mind its rings, which aren't actually rings. They consist of pieces of asteroids and meteors flying around the planet. Saturn's mass is so big that it attracts many other space bodies to its orbit. And right now, you're one of them. Time to get creative with your workout. You've scheduled a skydiving experience here. If you freefall in Saturn's atmosphere, you'll reach the speed of 30 miles per second. Don't forget to open your parachute. Eh, On second thought, though, you won't be able to touch the ground anyway. Saturn's surface is pure gas. Quick fun fact. Once Saturn got in the way of the 10th planet forming in the solar system, The planet's debris, which partially makes up Saturn's rings now, could have blended into a planet. But it was pulled into Saturn's orbit instead. You're nearing Europa, one of Jupiter's moons. Gravity here is so weak, you feel weightless. Let's say there's a rock climbing wall there. How about you give it a try? Usually, this sport requires a lot of physical strength. But here, you'll only have to carry 13% of your weight. Your climb to the top will be easy-peasy in these conditions. Entering Jupiter's atmosphere will feel like being inside a cloud. See that red spot in the bottom left corner? That's a storm twice the size of Earth that's been raging for hundreds of years. To have some fun here, why don't you do some jumping jacks? I'll count to 100. Ready, set, go! Gravity here is super strong. It's two and a half times as powerful as gravity on Earth. So you'll probably get exhausted at the count of 30. (laughs) Too bad. Uh Uh-oh. Passengers aboard the spacecraft fasten your seatbelts. You might experience some heavy turbulence. To travel from Jupiter to Mars, you'll have to move through an asteroid belt. Just in case you're worried your ship will bump into something, relax. There's a distance of 300,000 miles between asteroids. Let's stop at Ceres, the only dwarf planet in the asteroid belt. Gravity here will make you feel pretty strong. How about practicing some caber tossing? Cabers are heavy logs that can measure up to 20 feet long. The goal is to throw them as far as possible. Here, a 180 pound pole feels as if it weighs 5 pounds, which is basically the weight of a melon. Ready for the series caper competition? Woohoo! Finally, Mars. Remember all those handstands you've always wanted to try? Well, here's the place to do them. Mars's gravity is about two and a half times weaker than that on Earth, which means you'll probably be able to lift your own body weight without any difficulty. Since people keep trying to terraform Mars, opening a gym here doesn't sound like a bad idea, does it? Passengers and crew members, we're now beginning our descent to Phobos. It's one of Mars's moons. Gravity here is incredibly weak. If you've always dreamed of having superhuman strength, this is the place for you. You can work out here by, say, doing some artistic gymnastics. Start off with a cartwheel, then move on to tricks performed in the air. On Phobos, you can start doing triple back handsprings in no time. Ah, look! Earth is about to appear on the horizon. It sure looks majestic from here, but we won't stop there now. Instead, let's visit Earth's sister, Venus. It has almost the same mass as Earth, which means these planets have similar gravities. Now, Earthlings can't survive on Venus's surface because of the large amount of ammonia in its atmosphere. But let's imagine you could practice some outdoor sports there. Do you feel like trying bumper bubble soccer? That's when you dress yourself in a giant bubble ball vest and keep bumping into other players. People play this game on Earth. On Venus, with its slightly weaker gravity, it might be a little bit easier. But still, you have to consider you'll be wearing a 25-pound ball as a vest, kind of like a hamster back on Earth. Not to mention your outfit will restrict your arms and legs. It's a challenge, but it sounds fun to me. Our
1: universe is full of both amazing and terrifying things. You already know about quasars, black holes, dark matter, and so on. But how about the horrors of space that you haven't even heard of? Would you like to visit the most bizarre worlds in the universe? And it's not me who made this list, but NASA themselves. Welcome to the Galaxy of Horrors, NASA's awesome Halloween collection. Please join me on a journey to some planets, and tell me which ones you would consider the most horrible. Buckle up! Our first destination is a gas giant called Tress 2B. It's located 750 light-years away from us, If we used a regular spaceship, it would take us about 10 million years to get there. TRAS-2b orbits a yellow dwarf, a star similar to our Sun. It also weighs about 1.5 times more than Jupiter. So what's so special about it? Well, if you're afraid of the dark, you definitely don't want to visit this place. It's the planet of eternal night, the darkest one of all the planets known to us. But it's not that far from its star, so why is that? The thing is, the surface of Tress 2 b reflects light even worse than coal does. Because of this, it seems that there's no light at all. If you were flying across the surface of this planet, it would be like walking with a blindfold on your eyes. Oh, wait. Actually, there is some light. An eerie, deep red glow surrounds the surface of the planet. This glow is created by the burning atmosphere, which makes Tres-2b a scorching planet the air there is even hotter than lava. Oh, but if you think that was bad, let me show you the next place of our horror journey. NASA wasn't beating about the bush while nicknaming this one. Now we're not just talking about one planet, but three at once. They're also located quite far away, 2300 light-years from the Sun. We would have reached them by ship in about 35 million years. All the planets are in the constellation Virgo. And each is extremely light much lighter than the earth these three exoplanets are called poltergeist dragger and (laughs) phobitor cool names huh it's because each of these planets is about to become a ghost soon the thing is they don't revolve around a star but around a pulsar pulsars are rotating neutron stars with an extremely powerful magnetic field in simple words these are the stars that exploded one day after the explosion, they usually emit such a powerful pulse that it causes the star to rotate at an unimaginable speed, several thousand rotations per second. At the same time, they constantly emit electromagnetic pulses that affect everything around them. So, you've probably already guessed what's happening with our zombie planets. They're slowly, gradually being destroyed under the gigantic influence of radiation. One day, they'll disappear without a trace. Ghost-like planets orbiting an undead star? Yeah, Zombie World is a fitting name. It's also not surprising that scientists nicknamed this pulsar Lich, despite the long official name. Well, at least these guys stick together on their final dance. This planet has a long name, so bear with me. HD 189733 b. This gas giant is 65 light years away from us. It would have taken around 1 million years to get there on a spaceship. HD, uh, well, this planet is slightly more massive than Jupiter and orbits its star, an orange dwarf, all alone. At first glance, it may seem friendly. A pleasant blue color and curls on the surface. Kind of resembles a summer sky or foam on sea waves, right? Oh, looks are very deceptive, my friend. This planet has a pleasant cobalt blue color. to the hazy, blow-torched atmosphere. This atmosphere contains silicates that condense when heated. In other words, the clouds on this planet have rain made of glass. Yes, it rains hot glass shards here. Oh, and if that's not enough, there's a raging wind on the surface which is moving at a speed of 5,400 miles per hour. Just to compare, the fastest wind on Earth had a speed of 254 miles per hour, about 20 times weaker. And because of this, hundreds of thousands of glass shards rush horizontally across the planet's surface at breakneck speed. I really don't envy anyone who would want to try to land there. By the way, this isn't the only example of strange rains in our universe. For example, it rains molten iron on the planet Dimidium. Or let's take so-called carbon planets. Their existence hasn't yet been proven, but if they do exist, there would be tons of black poisonous clouds and it would rain pure gasoline and hot liquid asphalt oh and also raindrops would explode upon touching the surface Eh, nothing special the next planet though is actually really strange it didn't just revolve around its star it lived inside the star this cosmic miracle is called koi 55b or kepler 70b this planet is very far away from us, 4,000 light-years. It would take about 70 million years on a spaceship. It's twice as light as Earth, and fully rotates around its star in just a couple of hours. A long time ago, it was an ordinary Earth-like planet about the size of Jupiter. It was peacefully and calmly orbiting its red dwarf star, Koi 55. But everything changed about 700 million years ago. Perhaps you've heard that in a couple billion years, our Sun will begin to expand into a huge star, absorbing everything in its path. Well, this is the fate of red dwarfs. Sooner or later, they increase, turning into incredibly hot blue giants. The same thing happened with Koi 55. This star began to increase in size and heat up in temperature, gradually turning into a blue-white giant. It was ready to devour its nearest planets, but Koi 55b didn't care about it When the star reached it, this planet just settled inside. And moreover, after some time, it left its star, simply returning to the new orbit. How is that even possible? Life inside its star turned Koi 55b into a red-hot round stone. It's one of the hottest planets we've discovered so far. The temperature on it reaches 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's hotter than the sun, which is, let me remind you, an actual star. And for some reason, It's still alive and lives as if nothing happened. Unfortunately, sooner or later, the planet will disappear anyway. It's slowly evaporating itself due to the incandescent atmosphere. But still, it somehow managed to survive the journey through the star, which isn't typical for regular planets, to
2: put it mildly. I envy this willpower. When you see it in the sky, it looks round, but the moon is more of an oval shape, similar to a lemon. This shape flattened with a bulge on each side, came out billions of years ago when extremely hot tidal forces shaped its crust. They heated up some regions more than others. Gravity from our planet has helped to exaggerate this lemon shape over time. When they were getting ready to send missions to the moon, some researchers were worried because there was a thick layer of dust on the lunar surface. They were afraid seas of dust were both soft and thick enough to swallow their lunar lander. But even though the surface there is dusty, this layer is just too thin to cause complications. Our moon certainly isn't the biggest one in the solar system. The champion here is Ganymede, one of the 79 moons circling around Jupiter. But our moon is the largest in relation to its parent planet. It has a diameter of more than 2,000 miles, which is slightly bigger than the quarter of the size of the Earth. Pluto, for instance, has a smaller moon to planet ratio. Its biggest moon, Charon, is almost the size of Pluto, which is why it looks like a double dwarf planet system. How long would a walk around the moon take you? When the Apollo astronauts were there, they managed a walking speed of approximately 1.3 miles per hour. On average, you walk twice as fast down on Earth. The low gravitational force on the moon would give you significantly less traction on the ground. But those special spacesuits astronauts were wearing were never actually designed for long-distance hikes. In theory, you could maybe reach the speed of 3 miles per hour before you'd need to break into a run. At this pace, you travel 6,770 miles, which means making a circle around the moon in 91 days if you're walking non-stop. Why does the moon change its shape? It goes through different phases each month starting from the new moon and gradually going to the full moon. Just to do the same thing all over again, but in reverse. The sunlight hits one half of the moon at a time. This gives it a night and a day side, just like we have it here on Earth. The shape we see the moon in depends on where it's located compared to the sun. If it's directly between us and the sun, the sunlight only hits the side we don't see. That's a new moon. It appears completely dark in that phase. But when it comes to the far side of our planet from the Sun, its day side completely faces the Earth. That's when we see a full moon. After the initial phase, when the moon is new, we'll see more of its surface in the sky as it orbits our planet. It's something we call waxing. The moon in this phase first becomes a crescent. The first quarter moon is when it's half full. After that, it goes into a gibbous moon phase when it's larger than half full, but not yet full. After it reaches the full moon phase, it slowly shrinks and goes through the same phases but in the opposite direction. While up on the moon, you'd probably see human footprints there. True, no one has stepped there since the last Apollo mission in 1972. And the footsteps may stay there for many years because there's no geological activities on the moon, like earthquakes or volcanoes. There are no winds, rain, or other things that could erase these footprints. How would you get to the Moon? Rockets are probably the first thing that comes to your mind. But a lunar elevator could be an even better solution. Because traveling in a rocket would be a difficult, expensive, and pretty dangerous way to try to reach the lunar surface. Why would people want to go there? It's not just about craters, an amazing view of our home planet, or other unique things the Moon offers. It's also full of resources like a rare form of helium. Humans could use it in fusion power stations on Earth. We could extract some other rare elements too and use them for smartphones and other gadgets. For a lunar elevator, we'd need to stretch a cable anchored to the moon's surface for 250,000 miles towards the Earth. We wouldn't be able to attach it directly to our planet because both Earth and the moon are moving, but we could terminate high in our planet's orbit we'd have solar-powered robotic shuttles that would move up and down the cable. This is like having a conveyor belt to ferry rare and precious resources our way. The cable would be as thick as a pencil and would weigh 40 tons. It sounds expensive, but a lunar elevator would most likely pay for itself within only 53 trips. The moon is in constant motion. It rotates on its axis and circles around the Earth. And it makes the same amount of time for the moon to make a circle around the Earth and rotate once on its axis, compared to our planet, which rotates on its axis every 24 hours, and makes a full circle around the sun in 365 days. So, the moon is tidally locked to our planet, which is why we always see the same side of the moon. One theory says the moon probably formed when a large Mars-sized object from our solar system hit the Earth. They collided 4.5 billion years ago when the solar system was still in its early stage, which was pretty chaotic. If this theory is correct, around 60% of the moon is made of lighter elements that are also present in the outer layer of our planet. A lucky set of circumstances lets us see total solar eclipses from our planet. The Moon is the perfect size and distance from the Earth to appear the same size as the Sun when we're looking at it in the sky. When the Moon passes between the Sun and us, it covers the Sun perfectly. Plus, you can see an impressive halo that illuminates its edges. If it were any farther from us or smaller, a solar eclipse would only look like there's a blot on the Sun. Our Moon contains the water that kinda jumps around. There's water there locked up in ice. Some water molecules move around the surface as the Moon cools and warms during the day. The water gets stuck on its surface until the lunar midday, when the Sun is above the upper branch of any of the Moon's meridians. At this point, some of the water melts, heats up, and ends up in the delicate lunar atmosphere. Its atmosphere generally contains some unusual gases, including potassium and sodium venus mars and earth don't have these in their atmospheres so the water stays and floats there until it gets to a cooler area then it settles back to the surface there's a specific anomaly under the surface of the south pole of the moon a giant and extremely dense blob of metal lodged in the mantle and most likely it's altering the moon's gravitational field no one knows how such a huge blob of metal ended up trapped under the lunar surface It could perhaps be
0: remnants of the iron-nickel asteroid. (laughs) There's water on that there moon. No, really? Hmm. But of course you knew that, right? However, NASA didn't know there was water on the moon when Apollo astronauts went to the moon 50 years ago. The astronauts brought back 842 pounds of rocks from the moon in hermetically sealed bags. When some of the hermetically sealed bags had water in them, NASA thought the bags had gotten contaminated from landing in the ocean. It was moon water. But NASA never made the connection that the water came from the moon rocks. Because, hey, there's no water on the moon, right? We now know that that's wrong. There definitely is water on the moon. However, who discovered that there is water on the moon is a bit of a tangled question. India claims that their Chandrian-1 lunar orbiter discovered water in the moon's soil. Regolith is the geologic term during its 2008-2009 mission. That claim is disputed because the Chandrayaan-1 spacecraft took only infrared spectral readings of the lunar surface at 3 nanometers. The positive results could also indicate OH molecules as well as H2O. OH is a hydroxyl, meaning it could be either an acid or an alcohol. India sent Chandrayaan-2 to the moon in July 2019, To confirm the earlier findings, and did find H2O by taking infrared spectral readings at 6 nanometers. But NASA's SOFIA laboratory claimed it found water on the Moon in August of 2018. SOFIA, the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, flying at 45,000 feet aboard a modified Boeing 747SP, took 6 nanometer spectral readings of the lunar surface and found the clear signature for water in August 2018. However, there is some dispute about that, too. Sophia's readings were not consistent with variations in temperatures on the moon. So, what's going on here? It's there, and then it isn't. Clearly, a hands-on measurement of the temperature on the lunar regolith is necessary to pin down if, and when, water is present in the sunlight on the moon. Therefore, the blue ribbon for the definite discovery of water in the rocks and soil on the Moon must be given to China's Chang'e-5 lunar rover, working on the Moon's near side in 2020. The question becomes, how much water is in the dirt and rocks on the Moon? The answer? Mm, Not much. About one drop of water could be squeezed out of every cubic meter of regolith, and just slightly more in the rocks. Engineers are currently scratching their heads, trying to figure out what kind of machinery to design and build that will be able to mine this moon water. It is essential that the water be found locally on the moon. Water is too heavy to bring in any large quantities up to the moon to supply human activity, such as building a planned moon base. Without a water supply, long-term human presence on the moon is a definite no-go. Fortunately, water is believed to exist more abundantly on the Moon in another location, at the Moon's south pole. As early as 2010, NASA radar mapped the polar regions of the Moon. Radar mapping depends on the bounce-back or reflective signal of the radar waves. Radar bounces back differently when it strikes land or water or ice. Just like with your eyes closed, you can tell if someone is knocking on metal, wood, or plastic. The sound waves have their own distinctive pattern, just like radar does. The amount of time it takes to receive the bounce-back signal creates a map of the surface topography. Mountains, valleys, and ridges can all be mapped accurately, creating a detailed surface map. When passing over the craters of the lunar south pole, the radar-ranging reflection bounced back with a signal that indicated ice within the craters. This was big news and a thrilling finding. It is a peculiar quality of craters at the Moon's south pole that the Sun never shines down into the craters. The angle of sunlight merely skips horizontally across the tops of the craters, never going down into the craters. The unique polar location creates a situation where the upper rims of polar craters are always in the sunlight. But the bottoms of the craters never receive sunlight. Ice at the bottom of the craters will never melt. Over 40 permanently dark craters lie in the vicinity of the lunar South Pole, and they all appear to have ice in them. Space agencies from all around the world quickly made announcements that they were planning moon bases at the lunar South Pole. China, Russia, Europe, and Japan are planning to place solar panels around the rims of the craters since they have sunlight 24-7 and mine the ice at the bottom of the craters. NASA was not so quick to do that. Wisely, NASA chose not to make extravagant plans based on a single observation. It's just not good science. Multiple observations are necessary. If your cousin Billy at dinner sees the salt shaker levitate and float in the air but no one else notices it, it might not have happened, no matter how much Billy insists it did happen. Multiple observations are necessary for something to be considered real, and at least one of those observations must involve direct contact. NASA launched the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter to orbit closely over these craters at the Moon's South Pole. Of the seven LRO instruments taking detailed readings is the LAMP instrument, which can take ultraviolet images of the dark craters as they are illuminated by sunlight. Pretty clever! Current thinking estimates that there is one trillion pounds of water ice in the permanently dark craters at the lunar South Pole, or about 500 billion liters of water. This is close to about what the whole United States uses in just two days. But for a moon base, 5 billion liters of water could last a thousand years. Now, how did this ice get there? Comets are the best explanation. Comets can be composed of many different kinds of ice, water ice being the most common, since oxygen and hydrogen are so prevalent in space. Earth is the only place in our solar system, however, with Italian ices. When a comet crashes into the lunar south pole and makes a crater, the ice is trapped there, never to melt or evaporate since it is compacted into the Moon's surface. Radar readings have indicated ice as deep as 60 feet below the surface at the bottom of these dark craters. It's going to get very crowded at the Moon's south pole when all these countries begin carrying out their plans to exploit the perpetual sunlight on the crater rims and the ice at the crater's dark depths the moon's south pole is fast becoming the most valuable and most coveted piece of real estate outside of the Hamptons on Long Island, New York. Now, did you know that our sun is actually green? Okay, okay, I'm kidding. But in reality, it's all colors you can imagine at the same time. Wait, what? I know it sounds like a joke, but I'm being serious. Can't you tell? In fact, our sun contains absolutely all the waves of the light spectrum. It's simultaneously red, blue, green, yellow, you name it. Where do you think rainbows come from? When sunlight gets reflected off water droplets in the air, it splits into a bunch of colored waves that we can see individually. And when they're all together, we see a white ray of light. Our eyes are unable to perceive the concept of all colors at the same time. So their combination seems white to us. Wait, you might say, why white? Isn't the sun yellow? Yep, it's yellow too. But please, don't stare at the sun just to make sure. It appears white when we see it from the International Space Station. This is the sun's real color as our eyes perceive it. The sun gets a yellowish hue when its rays get scattered in Earth's atmosphere. Our atmosphere doesn't let the blue rays of the spectrum pass very well. But the red ones? Hey, sure, why not? By the way, that's why the sky seems blue to us. The atmosphere scatters the blue color all over the place. During sunrise and sunset, short blue waves get reflected, but the long red ones reach us perfectly. That's why we see sunsets as pink, orange, or red. But what would happen if the sun had a different color? To answer this question, let's quickly repeat what we've learned. 1. The sun has the whole color spectrum in it. 2. Our atmosphere is like blue rays? No. Nope. Red rays? Anytime. So you've probably already guessed what would happen if the sun was, let's say, red. The whole world would look like it does during sunsets. Not bad, huh? We wouldn't even have to wait for the evening to admire the scarlet sky. Orange water and a bright red moon. Yeah, it would be darker than what we're used to, but still not bad. Oh, by the way, one day the sun will actually turn red. When its life comes to an end, it will expand and gradually turn into a red giant before finally burning out. But uh, it's not going to be so much fun for us. So let's hope we won't be around to see that moment. I know I won't. Hey, I've got a party to go to. Okay, now, what if the sun was green? Well, the truth is, the sun is green. So here's your dialogue. Wait, are you kidding me? Didn't you just say that it's white? Ooh, good job on that, by the way. Well, not exactly, bud. The sun just looks white. But technically, it has a temperature of around 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And the pink wavelength of the sun's spectrum corresponds to the green-blue hue. But to make sure that the sun is green, we need to drown out the rest of the visible spectrum. Then our atmosphere will let through a pure green color. And what'll happen then? Well, everything will be green. And everything will also be a bit darker. Well, face it, it's not easy being green. Okay, moving on. Now let's paint the sun blue. Blue stars actually do exist. They're called blue giants. Fortunately, our sun is not one of them. Why fortunately? Well, because if it was a blue giant, it would be a young, beautiful, unimaginably large, and very, very hot star. See, our red is hot, blue is cold logic doesn't apply to stars. The hottest stars are white and blue, and the coldest are yellow and red. Yeah, our sun is actually very cold compared to other stars. Now, take the average temperature in your city, but multiply it, like, by hundreds of thousands. Yeah, we're struggling with global warming here, but global burning? Eh, no thanks, blue giants. Anyway, let's imagine that the sun turned blue. How would we see the world? Surprisingly, nothing would change. Remember how I said that the atmosphere scatters blue light? That's why, in this case, everything would remain almost the same. Maybe the sky would get bluer, but we wouldn't see much difference. And finally, the darkest, pun intended, option. What if our sun turned black? Stuck up on lamps and candles because there is no more light. People use electricity all over the world 24-7. We also can't see the moon anymore. After all, we can observe it these days only because the sun's rays get reflected off of it. Now, the only thing we still have to illuminate our nights are stars, but they don't help us much. Good thing this scenario is totally unrealistic, and there are no black stars, right? Well, yeah, there are no black stars. And still, our sun will eventually become completely black one day. And I don't mean a black hole. I'm talking about black dwarfs here. You've probably heard of white dwarfs. Maybe even seven dwarfs. When a star like our Sun is about to finish its life, it expands and turns into a red giant. And then, gradually losing its upper layers, it turns into white dwarfs. Since they no longer produce fuel, they slowly cool down. All that remains is a small core, living out its life and burning bright. And when the star cools down completely, right, it turns into a black dwarf. But you've probably never heard of them. Why? Because, surprise, surprise, they don't exist. And no, I was not lying. The thing is, a star needs about 1 quadrillion years to turn into a black dwarf. And our universe is still a baby. It's only about 14 billion years old. So no star has reached this stage yet. Even the most ancient of them still emit a little light. That's why black stars are just a theory. And it's unlikely that we'll ever see such a star at all. But remember the famous saying, The stars that we see at night are already ghosts because their light has reached us only now. Well, that's a myth. They're all still alive. Why am I telling you all this? Well, let's imagine that our sun turned into a black dwarf. The entire solar system would immediately get plunged into absolute darkness. It would also be terribly cold. The moon would leave its orbit and crash into Earth. Wait, no. Let's overlook this moment and assume we're still alive. Fortunately, we wouldn't freeze instantly, as you might think. Earth's core has its own temperature, more than 9,000 degrees. But the temperatures on the surface of the planet would still immediately drop to 32 degrees Fahrenheit. The core would gradually cool down. Every two months, its temperature would drop by two times. In just two months, Earth's surface temperature would be minus 190 degrees. And in a year, it would reach minus 450 degrees. Most plants would disappear pretty quickly, not because of the cold, but because of the lack of photosynthesis. Others would live a little longer thanks to the oxygen still remaining in the atmosphere. And, oddly enough, trees would survive for a very long time. They have a slow metabolism and get sugar from the ground. The upper layer of the oceans would freeze very quickly. Fortunately, this thick crust of ice would insulate deep waters, so the entire ocean wouldn't freeze for some time. Marine creatures would be doing pretty well. They existed long before us and are already used to crazy temperature changes, the lack of oxygen and food, huge pressures, and other joys of deep-sea life. And what about us humans? Well, first of all, we'd start getting sick. Without vitamin D, people would face a huge number of different health problems. Also, our bodies need sunlight to produce melatonin. This melatonin helps us understand when we should go to bed and wake up. If people didn't have this hormone, their bodies would get very confused and wouldn't understand whether they needed to sleep or not. That would mean insomnia for many people. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side.